Well, we're uh, turning the corner here. We're a little over halfway through our Come and See series, and uh, it's been a a series where we've walked through the Gospel of John, and we have considered this phrase which pops up over and over, either specifically being spoken by our Savior or by somebody else, or it uh, finds its way into the, the narrative in the idea of people coming to Christ and seeing him in a new way or seeing everything in a new way as they come and see. Last week we looked at the woman at the well and her story as she comes to Jesus and comes to see everything differently because of Jesus, comes to see him as Christ the Messiah. And it takes a, a really nice turn at the end where she goes back to the people that she knows, to her, to her community, and tells them, come and see, come and see this man. He could be the Messiah. And many come to faith in Christ through her. Today we're going to look, uh, we're going to fast forward a couple of chapters. We'll be in John chapter 9. So if you want to start turning there, either in your own Bible or one of your uh, pew Bibles there in the seat backs in front of you, you can find uh, John chapter 9 and verse, uh, I'm sorry, on page 1664. And we're going to look at the story that this chapter contains of a man who was blind at birth, who was born blind, and comes to physically see as a result of his encounter with Jesus, but is contrasted by the Pharisees and the religious leaders who uh, remain in their spiritual blindness. And so we're going to dig into this story and all that it has to say to us today as we come to see Jesus. Before I I dive into that and read to you John chapter 9, I want to remind you of the ministry tables that are out in the uh, out in the lobby there. These are an invitation for you to, uh, to be resourced. We're wanting to equip you to invite others, whether that's to a Sunday school class or to a youth group or uh, to the things that are happening here on a Sunday morning or into our worship area. We want to equip you to invite. So there are invite cards out there. There's information out there. There are people that are involved in those ministries out there. And uh, the other opportunity there is an invitation to serve, that God's doing exciting things here at Linwood Wesleyan Church, and he's going to be sending people to this church, and you can be a part of that. So if you've been here for some time and aren't engaged in service in some way, we'd really encourage you to, to sign up. And several of these teams, you can serve once a month. You know, it's not like you have to be here at 7.30 on Sunday morning every month or every week for the rest of your life. It, many of them are, are 15 or 20 minute tasks, but they make a big difference, especially uh, if they enable new people to come and get connected. So we'd really encourage you uh, to do that or to, to avail yourself of that. You may have noticed they changed. Uh, when we were emptying the coffee pots last week and putting them away, it was evident that everybody had found the coffee pots. And uh, everybody had gotten a cup of coffee last week that wanted one. Uh, but when we were looking over the ministry tables, we noticed there weren't a lot of sign-ups. And so, well, maybe people just didn't find them. So we'll put them where the coffee was, because everybody knew how to get to the coffee. And, uh, and maybe if they, we change location a little bit, that'll encourage some people. We've got some wonderful people out there manning those tables. Uh, we would love for you to stop by. And, uh, you know, I, got, I, got, I get compliments, and I like compliments. I love a pat on the back. Who doesn't, right? The greatest compliment that you could give a pastor is to invite them to somebody the following week and say, Pastor, I was so encouraged by your message last week that I brought somebody with me because I want them to hear too. And so uh, not that I want you to stop saying, I really liked your sermon. I love to hear that, especially in the moment. But the biggest compliment, the biggest uh, attaboy you can give a pastor is to 
bring somebody to church with you next week and invite me or, and, and introduce them to me. And the same thing with Pastor Zach and with Amanda, our children's director. One of the greatest compliments you can give them is to invite somebody to be a part of the ministry here that says, hey, I'm endorsing you and I'm endorsing what you're doing and I'm endorsing the ministry that we have here. The other thing that we're going to be doing today, you may notice we only sang one song after the, the, the welcome. Uh, we're, we're inviting some new members and we're introducing some new members to the church. And membership is a big deal and we're excited about that. So we've got that planned at the end of the service and left a little extra time for that. As long as Pastor Mark doesn't go too long, uh, we should be in good shape. We've got a lunch to celebrate that afterwards. We had people sign up. If you didn't sign up, uh, we, we planned a little extra food so another 20 or 30 people could probably come. And uh, we want to celebrate that. But I also want to make Make sure you know that, that if you would like to learn more about getting connected here and about taking your next step at Linwood, whether that is uh, baptism or serving somewhere or becoming a member of the church, that uh, we'll have a next steps class next week after church. We used to do these on Wednesday nights. Um, we've, we've consolidated a little bit. We've moved it to a Sunday when you're already here. So next Sunday after church, you can uh, you can be a part of the Next Steps class and learn about what it means to take the next step here at Linwood. There's even a checkbox on the connection card for you to indicate that you'll be a part of that. We'd like you to do that. We'll have a light lunch and we'll share some information with you, answer your questions, and let you know what uh, would be the next steps for that. So now I'm ready to, uh, to dive into our scripture today, and I want to uh, encourage you to read along with me in the Bible that's in your hand, whether that's on a phone or, or one of our pew Bibles. I'm going to read the whole chapter again. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed uh, hearing large amounts of scripture in the message, and I've enjoyed uh, kind of setting the table with that. And I love that you guys picked up and read right along with Chris when he led the scripture reading between songs. We had thought he would just read that, but you picked it up and you started reading along, and it was awesome to hear our congregation reading scripture together, reading God's word together. So here's the story of Jesus healing a man born blind. It's found in John chapter 9. As he went along, he, Jesus, saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud and with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Okay, you could just ask. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and to wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, on the day day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? 
It was your eyes he opened. He replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether you're a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know. I was born blind, and now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Is this man, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now just to give you a little bit of context for this, Jesus has been pretty busy. And uh, when we left him on John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, he went and he did some more healing, and he healed somebody on the Sabbath in John chapter 5, and he got into a little bit of, of conflict over that. In John 6, uh, he feeds the 5,000 and declares that he is the bread of life. Maybe you're familiar with, with that story. Uh, he loses a lot of his followers because he starts talking about eating his flesh, the, the, the bread of life and drinking his blood, and, and that freaks some people out because they didn't understand where he was going with all that. And that's understandable. A lot of people leave. This is where Peter declares that Jesus is the Son of the living God who has the words of eternal life. And, and those who stay with him really are with him going forward. In John chapter 7, he causes kind of a ruckus at the Feast of the Booths. In John chapter 8, he declares that he is the the uh, he's duking it out with the Pharisees. He declares that he's the light of the world. Also in John chapter 8 is the story of the woman caught in the sin of adultery. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a man who would have been participating in that sin, and he's nowhere mentioned. This is where Jesus says, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away. But each 
time that he is in the public setting, each time that he is healing or is feeding or is proclaiming things, each time that he is teaching or confrontation is coming to him, he is ruffling the feathers, so to speak, of the Pharisees and really putting them in a situation where they don't want to be. And we see that, and we see that evidence uh, here in John chapter 9 as well. And so a couple of general notes or things that stand out that I, I don't want to miss, uh, and then we'll really dive into our subject here uh, today. But the first thing is, I love that, that this, there's many pools in Jerusalem. The one that he sends this man to, to to wash and to be healed is the pool of Siloam, which means sent. It, it means I'm sending you to the pool sent, and by implication, you are now sent. You are now one who has been sent by God, and you have a story to tell, and you must tell your story. And that's all inherent in that idea. And he goes to this, and it, it reminds me of our, our, our theme throughout that we come and see and we go and be we come and see this this man comes to see physically literally and Jesus tells him now go you are being sent you are sent out into the world with your sight with this miracle that's been done in your life and you are to go and be good news you are sent out into the world. Another one, uh, you know, we mentioned that in John chapter 5, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Well, here in John uh, chapter 9, especially in verse 14, they pick up on this. And you might think, well, what work did he do? Well, you know, when God said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, which is one of the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the Jewish culture really expanded upon that in a very good uh, in, in many, many ways, to the point that if, if you were to spit on the Sabbath, and it, it just rolled in the dirt and made a little a, a, a little ditch, like a spit-sized piece of, of ditch. That was doing work, and you had now sinned. Or, or you could walk uh, this far but no farther. You couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath, and they had gotten very, very right down to the most minute detail. And so Jesus, by making mud, had 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 broken the Sabbath in their eyes, and, and therefore they had drawn the conclusion could not be from God. Um, doing a healing on the Sabbath was considered doing work, doing the work of God on the Sabbath, and they were, they were taking issue with him because of that. And this leads to what you may not have understood in verses 18 through 23 with the parents' response or the parents' fear and why they almost kind of deflect the questions that are coming to them and put them back on their, on their son, this man who had been born blind, is that they're terrified of being cast out or thrown out of the synagogue, which is understandable. And, and we don't understand culturally how big a deal this would have been for them because uh, if, if you messed up, and this isn't how we operate here, but we had to throw you out of Linwood Wesleyan Church, you can walk about 800 feet in either direction and you'll find another church. That was not the case in a Jewish village. The synagogue was the center of Life. They were in and around the synagogue every single day, and being thrown out of the synagogue was almost a cultural death sentence or a relational death sentence as far as your ability to, to be engaged in the community at all, to give and receive help uh, from others in the community. It was a really big deal, so they were trying very hard to keep that from happening. And uh, there really wasn't a church on every corner. It might have meant relocation or it might have just meant being social outcasts for the rest of their life. So that helps kind of inform uh, the story a little bit. What I really want to focus on today uh, is, is a progression that we see through this whole chapter of coming to see what others will not. 
coming to see what others will not. That's what we've titled this message. And there's, there's one track of it has to do with physical blindness. We have this miracle taking place with the man born blind. There's physical blindness and there's physical sight that comes as a result. But a parallel track that runs right next to this throughout the passage and really throughout the Gospel of John, as we've talked about light and darkness uh, being contrasted in the Gospel of John, is this spiritual blindness and spiritual sight that we see represented in the lives and the actions and the words of the Pharisees. So I want to look first at the physical sight that the blind man see, but also the evidence as we work through this passage and through this chapter of the spiritual sight that is coming to him as well. So he he starts this story both physically and spiritually blind, and we can see that in the text. We see that what the blind man comes to see a person and we see how he responds to interacts with this person as the chapter progresses so in verse 11 when he's first asked who was it that restored your sight he responds a man that they call jesus so he's not attaching any spiritual significance to jesus he's he's not even saying it's a man that i call Jesus. He's just saying this is a man that they, whoever they are, call Jesus. Next, the next time that he's asked to identify, in verse 17, at the end of that interaction, they say, who is he? He says, well, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. So now he's attaching spiritual significance to the person of Jesus Christ and saying because of the miracle that he did, he must be a prophet, one who speaks the words of God and who has supernatural power to do miracles. Some of the great prophets uh, that did miracles were Elijah and Elisha, and they were known for the miracles that they had done. And there was this prophecy that another Elijah would return. And in fact, Jesus is, is mistaken for him, or people assume that that's who this is. And so when he says he's a prophet, he's, a, he's attaching spiritual significance. He's coming to see what others will not. He's gone from a man they call Jesus to a man I call prophet. I'm recognizing his spiritual authority. Then in verse 33, he refers to him as a man of God. He says he must be a man of God. How could he do the miracles that he's done if he's not a man of God? So again, additional spiritual authority. He's been sent by God, and he is supernaturally empowered by God. And finally, in verse 38, in his interaction with Jesus at the end of the chapter, he comes to see and to believe that Jesus is the Son of Man or the Son of God. Some manuscripts of this in the original language translate the phrase son of as either son of God or son of man. The, the terminology is relatively interchangeable as it relates to Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Daniel's prophecy and several other prophecies in the Old Testament refer to a son of man or one like the son of man, like the, the quintessential man who comes, who looks like a man, but is, is the quintessential man. It is the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior of the world who is coming. And he declares, I believe, I believe that you are the Son of God. So he goes through a progression of no spiritual significance and no personal significance at the beginning of the chapter. To the end of the chapter, he has assigned spiritual significance and personal significance to believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And we can contrast this, what we've just seen, this progression of faith and of a personal faith in Jesus Christ in the blind man with what the, what the 
Pharisees refused to see, what they would not see. In fact, what they saw instead. The same story is playing out right before their eyes, and they are seeing something totally different. So while the blind man has come to see what others will not, the Pharisees have seen other things instead. We see in verse 16 and 24, they refer to Jesus as a sinner. They say he's a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. And if he broke the Sabbath, if he sinned, then he's a sinner, and he cannot be from God. We also see implications in verse 22 that they view Jesus as a threat. They view Jesus as a threat to their established religious authority, to their place in the religious hierarchy. Jesus is threatening all the foundations that they are stakeholders in. And so they not only see a sinner, they also see a threat. A sinner they might just kind of cast aside. A threat they feel forced to deal with in a different way. And finally, we see them referring to him as a stranger or as an imposter and saying, we know the words of Moses. Moses is our father. This man, we don't even know where he comes from. Well, they could have known where he comes from. He had not made any secrets of where he comes from. So that's not really uh, saying we don't actually know where, they're com- where he's coming from. What they're saying is this, we believe he's a stranger. We believe he's an imposter. They see a threat. They see a sinner. They see a stranger and an imposter, even though they're looking at the same person. That this man born blind is starting to see a savior, see a Messiah, see the person that has come to save their soul. And so it's really interesting when we consider the 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 where they land with Moses versus Jesus. And and Moses is our father, and we are disciples of Moses, and and if you're going after this sinner, and they're contrasting Moses with Jesus. And and it's interesting because Moses, Moses in John 117 refers to the law, that, that, that Moses brought the law, and they had gotten really good at the law, and they were stakeholders in the law and all the systems that go with the law. So they were stakeholders in the law, and they were followers of Moses because Moses was what had given them the power and authority that they had. But Jesus says, I have come full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, not contrary to the law, grace and truth within the law, a grace that comes into the law and brings, uh, brings the love and grace and mercy of God into the law. And we see that perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you could say that the law and Moses was the preparation, whereas Jesus is the consummation of the revelation of God. The preparation to help see and to establish order and authority and and all of those things came through the law and through Moses. Jesus is the consummation of all of it in the person of Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, the incarnate body and blood and flesh of Jesus Christ being the consummation of the entire law and the entire prophet's. And so our bottom line is we consider this contrast between the man born blind and what he comes to see and the Pharisees and what they refuse to see and what they see instead is this conclusion that if you think about it, it's true in all of life. That what you look for, you will find. What you look for, you will find. If you are looking for reasons to believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of the world, you will find them. They're all over in here. They're all over in this book. They're all over in the world around us. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that, that, that 
the love and the glory of God is inherent just in creation. The psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God. What you look for, you will find. And if you are looking for reasons to believe and reasons to have faith, you will find them. And if you are looking for reasons not to, you will find them. And some of you have experienced this when you've tried to share your faith with somebody or share your faith with a, belie- a non-believer, a loved one, somebody you care deeply about. And the only thing they're interested in seeing and finding are reasons not to believe. It can be intensely frustrating because where they see a reason not to believe, you see a reason to have faith. And it's so challenging and it's so hard to be patient with them. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But But I want you to see that what you're seeking really matters. And when we talk about coming and seeing and coming and seeing Jesus and coming to church and coming uh, to God's word every day and coming to your relationship with Jesus every day, what you're seeking really matters because you're going to find it. You're going to find it. The man born blind found the Son of God. The Pharisees found what they were seeking. They found a threat. They found a sinner. They found an imposter. And I think a good way to, uh, to illustrate this is the difference between hummingbirds and vultures. Everybody knows what a hummingbird is, right? They're beautiful, aren't they? Do you know what hummingbirds do all day long? They float around in flower gardens and they draw out the sweet nectar of a flower. And they, they nourish themselves with it. They find their actual sustenance flying around flower gardens and drawing the best parts out of beautiful flowers. Doesn't that just sound like a great life? Wouldn't you just love to be a hummingbird all your life? Just fly around flower gardens and draw the best parts, the sweet nectar of a flower out. And that's literally what you get your sustenance on. They're contrasted by vultures. What do vultures do? Vultures fly high, find something dead, something terrible, something nasty, something disgusting. They fly down to it, and they bury their heads into that dead nastiness. You can thank me for not putting some of the pictures that I found on a Google Images search of vultures tearing into this nasty, dead, gross stuff. Now, I don't even like looking at that picture for very long. And, and there were, they're, they're specially designed for this, actually. They have a way to be able to breathe with their beak buried in dead, rotting flesh. It's disgusting. And they spend their entire lives, and they actually find nourishment from flying high, looking for something terrible, and burying their head in it. Contrasted again by the hummingbird. And this is where the image that I want to leave you with and make spiritual application to the difference between hummingbirds and vultures. Which one do you want to be? You want to float through life, drawing the very best out of what's in front of you, looking for the beautiful, looking for the sweet, looking for the positive, and drawing it out? Or do you want to go through life flying high, finding something awful, burying your head in it? One of the pictures had a bunch of vultures together around a carcass. And that's what they do, isn't it? Like, they call their friends. And they spend time together in the dead, awful, horrible things. And so I want to encourage you to be a hummingbird. This is a no-brainer, isn't it? Be a hummingbird in all of your relationships. Imagine, Imagine for a moment, and most of you can think of some hummingbirds. I can think of some hummingbirds in my life. People who just go through life and they immediately spot the best in whoever it is they're in front of, 
even if they're in front of a vulture. And they spot the best and they draw that out. Imagine if you made it your goal to be a hummingbird in your relationship with your spouse. And instead of finding all the things that there are to be upset about or complain about or, or, or see as half full instead of, or I'm sorry, see as half empty instead of half full, you looked for the very best things and sought to draw those out and found nourishment from that process of being a hummingbird, of drawing the best out. Parents, what if we did the same thing with our kids? What if we made it our goal in life to find the very best things in our kids, the very best things in their character and their behavior and in their words and their actions, and we sought to draw those things out of them, and we were looking for them and finding nourishment in the process of building others up and drawing the very best out of them? What if we did the same thing with our neighbors and our coworkers and the people that maybe get on our nerves and we look for the best thing and seek to draw that out, to point it out, to say, this is wonderful about you. I love this thing about you and just be an encouragement to them. What if we, what if we chose to do this when we come to church or to our workplace or, or to our neighborhood and we look for what's right? We look for what's good and what's beautiful and what's sweet and we draw that out and call that out into the equation instead of being a vulture and going through life looking for what's not so good and burying our heads in that instead. It's a great lesson that we see coming from this because what you look for, you'll find. And, and, and vultures find dead stuff because that's what they're looking for. And hummingbirds find beautiful flowers and they draw the best parts out of them because that's what they're looking for. And if we go through life looking for the sweet, looking for the beautiful, looking for the positive, we will find it. If we go through life looking for reasons to have faith and to believe and to share our faith and to spread the good news and to serve and to give our lives back to the God who has redeemed them from an eternity in hell, we will find reasons everywhere we look. But if we look for ways to serve ourselves, if we look for what's wrong, if we look for reasons not to believe, if we look for reasons to go somewhere else or do something else, we'll find those too. So what we look for matters, just like it mattered to the blind man. He chose to see. He chose to have faith. He chose to begin a personal relationship with the Savior of the world instead of seeing a stranger or a threat or a sinner. And we have opportunity to do the same. And I really believe that, that this, is, this matters. This matters in your individual life, but it matters in your family and it matters in a collection of people when we as a church start to see the good and the beautiful in each other and draw it out. Then it becomes a place that it's irresistible. And somehow the church in America became resistible. Somewhere along the line, it became easier and easier to resist. And it's up to us to change that. It's up to us to make the church irresistible, to make an irresistible God irresistible to a world that doesn't know him, to help them see what they can't see without our witness, without our example, without our testimony. So I want to encourage you with this, to come and see. And Jesus, in verses 35 through 38, I want to read those one more time, and I want to focus on them for a minute before we close. In verses 35, we see that Jesus is seeking this man out. He hears that the man has been thrown out, by implication thrown out of the synagogue. He's been deemed a social outcast because he has aligned himself with Jesus. Jesus seeks him out, and he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, there's evidence in his behavior that he believes in the Son of Man. He hasn't denied him. So Jesus is giving him an opportunity to make the profession of faith. And the man says, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. 
Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He worshipped him. And in that moment, he became a child of God. 1 John 5.1, same author, the Apostle John, writes in one of his letters to the church in 1 John 5.1 that whoever believes in the Son of God, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is born of God. In that moment of professing faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as Jesus as the Son of Man, he became a child of God himself. He, he experienced that eternity coming into him, an eternal life coming into his equation. In fact, John writes at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he writes that his whole purpose in writing the Gospel of John, his whole purpose in doing this is that you might believe. If you have read the Gospel of John, John's purpose in writing it 2,000 years ago and his purpose in you reading it today is that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so my question for you today, if you are here today and you have not seen Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who died on a cross to take your place, to pay for your sins, then today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you come into the family of God. You step into faith in Christ. Today can be the day that you cross over the line of fear or the line of of disbelief or the line of doubt or the line of, fe- of shame and you step into the line, into the land of faith, into the place where God is in a relationship with you and he has paid the cost for your sin. Now I say that and I, I say it with great passion because I know that there could be someone or there could be several people here today who have never done that before and I desperately want you to do that but I do it recognizing that you have a part to play in it. And when I said earlier that it can be so difficult to share our faith and to witness and to share examples that we see as reasons to believe and others see as reasons not to believe that, that we can lose heart and I would encourage you don't lose heart. Keep doing your part. Keep sharing the good news. Keep giving witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. Keep telling. Keep sharing. Keep witnessing. Keep telling people about the man, Jesus, who has changed your life. That's your part. God has a part to play, and we can trust God to do his part. But they, whoever they are, whoever the other person is, they have a part too. They have to respond in faith. And we are faithful in our witness, and we are faithful in our trust in God to do his part. And then we have to be willing to pray and release those others to God. We have to be willing to pray and to release them and say, God, I've done my part. I trust you to do your part. And I'm going to pray, but I'm going to release this person into your hands. That can be difficult to do. But it's helpful if we remember that God calls us to obedience. God calls us to obedience in doing our part. He doesn't call us to outcomes. Over and over and over in Scripture, we see him saying, go and do this, not go and have this outcome from that. Go and do what I have told you to do, not go and make yourself wholly accountable for the outcome. In fact, the song that many of you would remember, Trust and Obey, It's trust and obey, trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It doesn't say trust and succeed. We're not accountable for the outcome as much as we are accountable for the obedience. And if we do our part and we trust God to do his part, eventually they'll do their part. They'll come to faith. 
So I want to encourage you. Maybe the reason that that you don't invite others to church is you're afraid that they're going to say no and you'll feel like you failed. You didn't fail. You didn't fail. If you made the invitation, if you were obedient to invite, if you were obedient to tell what you have seen and heard, tell about the, the difference that Jesus has made in your life, then you have done your part. God will do his part. And maybe they'll do their part. But you'll have done your part. And I want you to hear that. And I want you to know that that is important. We are to trust and obey. So as we wrap this all up, I want to I go back to our bottom line. What you look for, you will find. So what are you looking for? What will you seek today? What will you seek when you walk out of the church today? What will you seek when you wake up tomorrow or when you walk into work tomorrow? What are you looking for? Are you looking for the best things to draw out the best? Are you looking for what's beautiful and what's good and what's sweet to draw that out of others and to draw that out of situations? Or are you taking on the vulture and and looking for what's dead and nasty and getting focused on that? What will you look for when you walk home at the end of the day this week? What will you look for in your interactions with other people? What will you look for in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Because what you look for, you're probably going to find in most cases. I also want to give you a little extra credit. We didn't have time for, uh, to read this today, but it's a beautiful example. Uh, if you would like to do extra credit, I always loved extra credit in school. You know, I always wanted, to, you know, maybe that's going to be easier than the other assignment, so I can get enough extra credit, I can skip an assignment or two. Well, here's the extra credit. I want you to read Psalm 27 sometime this week. I want you to jot that down in your notebook or in your Bible or, or somewhere or put a note on your phone. Read Psalm 27 and read it. Read it from the perspective of this man that we've just been focusing on in John chapter 9. Read it from the perspective of somebody who was blind and had their sight given to them. That's a challenge. That's an extra credit for you. I hope you'll take that. Would you pray with me now as we close our service here? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your presence in our lives once again. We thank you that you enable us to see what others do not, what others will not. And you invite us to tell them, to tell the world what we have seen and heard, to come and see you and to go and be your messengers, your co-conspirators, your missionaries in the world that you have placed us in. And so God, help us to be hummingbirds this week. Help us to be those who look for the best and draw it out of others, draw it out of situations, rather than looking for the worst. Help us, God, to see as you see. That is the very nature of wisdom, to see as you see, to see the world as you see the world, to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to see as you see and to do as you say. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And you're invited to respond now. You're invited to come to an altar. If you'd like to, to pray for someone that you want God to initiate a conversation with, come to the altar and pray for them. Someone that you want to be at Linwood Wesleyan Church or in a church next week, come to the altar and pray. If you have needs and you want to pray for them, this is the time to respond in faith. You can come to the sides if you want someone to pray with you on the far sides, or you can come to the center if you want to pray alone. However you choose to respond, respond in faith today.